Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Last week we began our look at the biblical anthropology, the study of man according to the Bible in Romans chapter 1. This is a key passage from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through the middle of chapter 3, about verse 20 in chapter 3. A key passage in understanding humanity, the condition of the world, we ourselves. You know, it's really fascinating to watch over the course of history, mankind struggle for meaning in life and what an agonizing, usually disastrous struggle that has been. After thousands of years, we've basically come down to the point where we are told that we live in a purposeless universe, that we are essentially nothing more than higher order animals, but we have a really good chance of becoming gods in the perhaps not too distant future. That may sound a little crazy, but in circles where people talk about these big issues in academia, this is exactly what's being said. In fact, there's a very quiet movement that's just starting, and it's really gaining ground to say that maybe things aren't purposeless after all. There's been an enormous stream of writing coming from the scientific community recently discussing the numerous discoveries which show that the universe in many, many ways is amazingly fine-tuned to support and encourage human life and development. They call it the anthropic principle. Anthropic, uh, the Greek word man, anthropos. That is that the universe is designed for man. And one of the most interesting books recently is by Michael Denton, who is a pretty big shot molecular genetic expert, a professor in genetics. And he wrote in 1998 a book called Nature's Destiny, How the Laws of Biology Reveal Purpose in the Universe. He's not a Christian. He's not even very religious. But the word purpose in the title is significant because most of the time, Western science has been insisting for the last hundred years or so that there is no purpose detectable in the universe. But that is starting to change a little bit. Denton, like I said, is not a Christian or in any meaningful way religious, but he finds it an inescapable conclusion that the universe is designed to foster human life. And in his book, he writes this. He says, the anthropocentric, that's a big word, anthropocentric, what in the world does that mean? Anthropo means what? Man. Centric means the center. So it's a uh, man-centered view of things. The anthropocentric vision of medieval Christianity is one of the most extraordinary, perhaps the most extraordinary, of all the presumptions of humankind. It is the ultimate theory, and in a very real sense, the ultimate conceit No other theory or concept ever imagined by man can equal in boldness and audacity this great claim that everything revolves around human existence. That all the starry heavens, that every species of life, that every characteristic of reality exists for mankind and for mankind alone. It is simply the most daring idea ever proposed. But most remarkably, given its audacity, it is a claim which is very far from a discredited pre-scientific myth. In fact, no observation has ever laid the presumption to rest. And today, four centuries after the scientific revolution, the doctrine is again re-emerging. 
In these last decades of the 20th century, it is, its credibility is being enhanced by discoveries in several branches of fundamental science. By the way, that book, Nature's Destiny, is really worth a read. Um, you're not going to get a lot of uh, theology out of it, but it is incredible how finely tuned all different aspects and branches of science are saying, from you know galactic stuff to biology to the Earth's atmosphere and its structure and all of that, the nature of water, finely tuned, not just for life, but for the advancement of human life. That's what they're saying. So these ideas are coming forward again. This absolutely razor-thin balance of conditions to support life and allow for human advancement is really its staggering information. The scientist's point is this, that there are many things that if they were just a little bit different, just slightly different, and they say there's no reason why they shouldn't be different, if they were just slightly different in, in gravity, in chemical composition, in the Earth's location, item after item after item, life could not exist. And even in the development of technology, if conditions were not absolutely, remarkably, razor-thin, perfect, man could not advance technologically. So these folks are saying that man is actually what nature is designed for. Pretty remarkable. Now Denton isn't completely accurate when he says that the medieval view held that every characteristic of reality exists for mankind and for mankind alone. I think if you would have asked a medieval person about this, they would say that man is the center of creation, but they would say that rather than that all reality exists for man alone, that all reality exists for God. And man, as the pinnacle of creation, made in God's image, is benefited uniquely and designed uniquely to enjoy and exercise dominion over nature. They did see man, however, as directly tied to all the wonders of the world from a theological point of view. And now people like Denton are saying we have a scientific reason for believing that Man is the reason for everything existing. Interesting. But the difference between the medieval view and the modern view is that the modern idea is truly anthropocentric. That is, it is truly man-centered, and it is moving in the development in the direction of what you could call self-idolatry. The modern idea is that since science is awakening to the fact that the natural world exists to produce this remarkable intelligent creature called man, it's like built into the universe to produce man. That's the way they're looking at it. Then man, using his intelligence and fulfilling his destiny, has a role to play in his own evolution and advancement and through knowledge will discover the cosmic key, that unifying theory of knowledge which men like uh, Einstein were searching for. That one formula that, ex that explains all of reality. And then when we find that, man will be able to shape and mold reality according to his own wisdom. It is literally man as God, limited only by his own mind. Now, those ideas pop up in science fiction all the time, you know especially the upbeat variety of science fiction, like the Star Trek variety, where every now and then, somebody just super evolves into a glowing, wondrous entity and zips off into space, you know? It just, just happens sometimes. People super evolve. Well, how does that relate to the book of Romans? Well, directly, directly. Let's go back to where we were last week. Verse 18. The wrath of God, his anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness 
because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now last week we developed this idea about man suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He knows God. He knows all about God. Everyone knows. Everyone he knows God's essential nature. He knows that he is accountable to God. He knows so much. Every human being knows so much about God innately within and from the observation of nature, those two things, that they are, verse 20 says, without excuse. You cannot legitimately say, I need more information. I need more knowledge. You need to prove yourself to me. I don't get it. I don't see it. There is so much information that every human being has directly from God into their heart and also from the nature of the world that they are without excuse. Man knows from what God reveals about himself to every human heart and he knows from nature. God is not hidden. God is not mysterious. He is evident, the text says, obvious, manifest, clearly seen. So why doesn't everybody believe? Why don't we all follow him, seek him out, serve him as he was meant to be served, as we talked about previously? Well, verse 18 tells you, human beings suppress the truth, stifle it in unrighteousness. It is the commitment to cling to wickedness and unrighteousness, the love of sin, that compels men to suppress the truth. What truth? What God is like, that he is just, that his justice has called down his wrath on sin, that God will judge sin. That is suppressed knowledge. We mentioned last week that this idea of suppression may be quite unconscious. That is, people are not always thinking, oh, God is telling me that he's holy and good and that I'm a sinner. Well, I'm just going to shut that out of my mind. They're not doing that consciously. Like Scarlett O'Hara, I'll think about that tomorrow. It's not, it's not that kind of thing so much. No, I think it's speaking of something deeper, something that is literally bound up in us, that this is happening below the surface. R.C. Sproul compares the suppression to the categories of behavior in psychology which describe repression or suppression of information. We know this happens. It happens in traumatic situations or in extreme situations where the mind, the human mind, simply puts awareness or memory so deep that it is no longer there in the conscious, does not come to consciousness. If you read case studies of child abuse, you'll find many, many, many examples of this. People can literally drive from their memory horrible incidents in childhood, like abuse or incest or something. And though it is repressed and held out of the mind and pushed down, it's still there. So often it, it, it will creep out in some odd and inexplicable sort of behavior or seemingly irrational fear or anger suddenly. It, finds its way out, but 
still isn't directly aware in the mind. Well, the reality is that God does supply this knowledge of himself and the judgment to come to every human being. And we know it, but we don't want to deal with it. So we stifle it, even to the point of exclusion from consciousness. So the atheist really knows. He knows. The agnostic doesn't not know. They know. They're just suppressing information. The knowledge of God to a sinner provokes fear, more than fear, dread, because we are guilty. And we don't want God in the picture, not the God that's really there. So we suppress that. We press him down. And we can't do that completely because it still pops out of places. But we're designed by him. We're made by him. We're made in his image. So we can't get rid of all that. It's just who we are. So this desire for spirituality and um, God-like related things keeps creeping out in us because we're made in his image. We're persons like he is with an unshakable spiritual dynamic in us. We are spiritual beings. So what do we do? We find substitutes. We make trades. That's how we suppress the truth. Verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, their speculations, and their heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of man or creatures. What people do is exchange the true God, the knowledge they have of the true God, for a manageable deity in place of him. And they do this in an almost infinite variety of ways. They weaken or soften God in their speculations, in their minds, and usually they find a way to exalt themselves. Verse 23 explains where paganism comes from. It's a substitution for the true God. It's man's spiritual nature spilling out in manageable forms. Yes, pagans may be terrified of the lightning God or the thunder God or the earthquake God or whatever, but those are manageable deities because they've created ways to try to appease them. But an infinitely holy God who has pronounced you guilty, how do you appease him? Especially when you hate him and love the things that he hates, you see. Now, you could say it's a simple matter of repentance. That's not what people want to do because they love their sin. That's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So because men are unrighteous, they will not deal with a God who is perfectly righteous. So they substitute gods and goddesses of all sorts of varieties. And usually these deities are not interested in moral behavior at all. Classical paganism, pagan gods don't teach morals. They don't care about that. In fact, if you read the stories of the pagan gods, the gods themselves are very immoral. When Christianity was bursting across the Roman Empire, that was one of the main arguments Christians would make, look at your own gods. They sleep around, they commit murder, they're deceitful, they're monsters. Why are you worshiping beings like that? 
gods made in the image of man is what those are. Pagan gods just say, honor me and I'll bless you in some way. Honor my temple, bring the sacrifices, do the obeisance, do whatever it is, and exalt my name and I'll reward you in some significant way. There's no moral dimension. Most human beings just go with the flow. That's how they suppress the truth. They do it in groups, culturally. They adopt the prevailing religion of their culture because that's what we do as our people, whoever we happen to be. Even Christianity can be an escape from Christ. It can become just an ill-defined religious ritual. And, and you go do the church thing, and you use the church thing as a way to suppress the truth about who God is and what he expects and the judgment to come. What we need to remember is that none of this, none of this religious stuff is moving in God's direction. And here's where modern people get all confused. There are many paths to God. Have you ever heard anyone say that? The, the exact opposite is the case. There are many paths away from God. Many. And people are running in all of them. What did we read earlier in Matthew chapter 7? The way is broad that leads to destruction. Jesus said, and many are on that path. The way is narrow that leads to life, and few find it. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many ways away from God. Religion is moving away from God. Religion is making substitutions for the truth. That's what it is. It's not groping for the truth. It's groping away from the truth. It's an expression of unrighteousness, an expression of suppression. There is no historical data or reason to believe that polytheism was first, many gods, and that monotheism followed as some sort of evolutionary development. There is zero evidence for that, historically. It's just as possible, and biblically correct, to say that monotheism was there in the beginning and devolved into cheap theological knockoffs, like paganism. And the reason we know that can go that way is because that's exactly the way it's going today. You are living in a time where that is happening, where monotheism is giving way to paganism and everything else-ism. Anythingism. Literally. Modern history is an excellent case study. Western civilization used to be strongly monotheistic, one God. Mainly Christian, some Jewish, and Islamic as well, in a sense, as far as it could conquer this direction. But today, after centuries of rationalism and scientism and skepticism, you see not an absence of re religion, but a resurgence of paganism. You would think that the silliest and most superstitious religions, Wicca and Celtic paganism and fairies and goddesses and witchcraft and magic and silly nonsense, wearing crystal power around your neck, would be way on the decline that science would drive that out. It's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. The opposite is happening. Paganism is growing. Important people believe in astrology and spells and crystals and tarot cards and auras and Ouija boards and all the madness of all the silly superstitions. It's all coming back, raging back. People chant to a piece of paper that is sacred. In fact, I read in the Country Journal just a couple weeks ago, you know, in the religion page where they list all the churches, there's a new Sokogakai group in town. I said, what's that? Well, it's a Buddhist sect. 
Now, they say it's atheistic, because I have very good friends that used to be in that movement, so I know a lot about it. They say this is, it has no religious kind of, it's an atheistic, which Buddhism in its higher forms, as they call it, is atheistic. It doesn't deal with God at all. It's, you chant. You chant and you receive benefits. But you chant to a piece of paper. And my friend kept assuring me, this is before he became a Christian, now he's a Christian, he said, he said the paper is, is not a god. I said, well, what happens? Why are you sitting in front of it and you open the doors to the box and chant to the paper? What's going on with that? He says, it's just a way to focus. And I said, well, what are you focusing on? What are you saying to the paper? I don't know what I'm saying. Because they don't tell you what the chant really means. And, and then I said, well, let's take the paper out. No! Don't touch the paper! <laughs> Once when I was in a fight with my wife, I got real mad and I tore up the paper. It took me years to plead with the priest to let me have another piece of paper. Because if you tear the paper, your life will be destroyed with years and years of bad luck. This isn't religion to you? I asked. <laughs> it's just paper. And eventually my friend became a Christian and we all had a party where we tore up the paper <laughs> and jumped on the box. <laughs> But it was so, and, and even then, even after he became a Christian, his eyes got a little wide when he tore up the paper. I mean, that's religion. And that's not moving Godward. That's moving away. How could this happen to a scientific people? Because science was founded in a Christian worldview. Science grew out of Christianity. Because early scientists, and you name almost any of the big ones, they all believed that God created an ordered universe and that they could discover the order because God made it that way. That's why the Chinese invented all this cool stuff like gunpowder and all this stuff, but never knew what to do with it. Because they just happened to discover it, but they didn't believe in an orderly universe, so they, didn't, they couldn't develop science. But in the West, we developed science because these early scientists like Galileo and those guys all believed in an orderly world. But take God away... And now you have laws of science based on nothing. Based on chance. And that does not satisfy our nature because we're made in the image of God. So we start groping for meaning, for answers. Man gropes for his dominion, for something to fill his soul because he has one even though science says he doesn't. He's trapped by the way God made him. But cut off from God. So he's in darkness. Well, why not turn to God? No, no, not him. We're not going to go back to him, no. We won't think about him. Holy, pure, true. We'll find our own way. We'll find our own way. We'll find our own way. The real God is hated by the unrighteous heart. We won't submit. We won't return. He cast us out. Our parents hated him. We hated him. Put something in his place. Anything. So, you know, more exotic types of people, they put mustard on their forehead and wear orange robes and hop up and down in the street. Or pretend to have powers with spells and incantations. But most people just go to the cafeteria. I mean, the cafeteria of religion. Despite all the unbelief of our age, American culture was still founded on Christianity and still a fairly vibrant Christianity, although the church is a little bit adrift in our time. 
But it's hard to escape so much heritage. So we go to the cafeteria of religion and we take our tray and we go down the line and we, we pick and we choose the beliefs that we're really comfortable with and the ones we don't care for, we leave, you know, because they don't match our diet. Then we head for the checkout line. And because our Christian heritage is so strong in our country, elements of Christianity are almost always put on the cafeteria tray and interpreted in as broad as terms and least offensive terms as possible. And everybody has sort of nice ideas about baby Jesus and those kind of things. And we think this is wisdom itself. We really do. Selecting truth according to our individual preferences. We believe that's wise, profound, as though we can alter reality based on the mood we're in, or how we were raised, or what our opinions just happen to be this week. And all of it is idolatry. All of it. From Zeus to Isis to ancestor worship to Eastern mysticism to sacred animals and sacred rivers and exotic temples and idols of gold, and you can swing all the way across the world to the Western countries where there's people are using enchanted amulets and crystals and stones and seminars on your in, inner divinity and science fiction turned religion through Scientology or Christian science, which is neither scientific nor Christian, or the Mormon God who has wives and birthing them people out into the world or makes people wear holy underwear or anything, anything but everything but the gospel. Anything or everything but the truth. Some, there's something for everyone, every personality style. You can be a super clean-cut, really good-looking, church-going kind of thing, or you can be you know, a long-haired thing out in the desert, or you can do anything you want. There's all kinds of religion out there. There's all kinds. All of it is an exchange. And it's such a mad exchange. It's such a bad deal. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Why would anybody be so foolish who I trade something infinitely wonderful and precious for something low and powerless and ugly? You have to ask, why? Why make such a bad deal? Why exchange the Creator, the God who made such a wonderful world, a God who is good, who is infinite in every attribute, boundless in all of His infinite perfections? Why dump Him for idols, whether they be idols of wood or stone or idols of the mind, gods we invent out of our own imagination, our own preferences, the big man upstairs or my higher power? I've always loved that word, higher power. That's really interesting. Because it's not the highest power. It's just a higher power. There's some weird thing about that. Never quite sure where that came from. It's a term that's really insulting if you use it about the true God, who is the Almighty, who is the highest power. To call him my higher power. I don't know, it sounds like your big brother or something. Higher power robs God of his personhood, for one thing, and his greatness. There's a reason he's called the Almighty. It's because he's the highest power. Why depend on a higher power when the highest power is available? Why do that? Why make that exchange? Well, the reason the exchange is made is the reason for suppressing the truth. Because it's unrighteous. We love unrighteousness. What's it say in John chapter 1? Men loved what? Darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. It's a wicked willful sin that crowds out the real God 
from the mind and, and pushes him out of the consciousness. What is it about him that people don't like? Well, R.C. Sproul lists five things. There's probably more, but let me just run through these five real quick for you. First of all, it's God's holiness. God is infinitely, perfectly holy. And any time in Scripture when men are confronted by God in his holiness, they're always just gripped with fear. Probably the most clear example would be Isaiah chapter 6, where he has a, literally has a vision of God in his holiness in the temple. It says, I saw the Lord, holy and exalted. And the angels are flying around God and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And then as Isaiah, he, doesn't, he goes like this. He goes, Wow, what a neat thing. No, he doesn't do that. What's he do? Anybody remember? Woe is me. I'm ruined. He just instantly, this is a prophet of God. He's instantly aware of his sin. Instantly. He says, I've got a dirty mouth. I can't even look. I'm, he's just confronted by the holiness of God. He's blown away. Is the best way to describe it. By God's perfections. Second thing, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows every thought you have. He knows every motive for what, you, for what you do. And you see that in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve sin. What's their first compulsion, the first driving reality after they sin? It's to hide. To hide from God's gaze. To hide from his presence. They cover themselves up. They hide in the bushes. But there are no secrets. There are no closets where he doesn't see. There's no distance you can go or to escape from him and do something. There's no place so dark that he can't see in it. And he can't be escaped. He can't be deceived. He can't be avoided. And he knows it all. That is reason alone to crush him out of our minds, to suppress the, our awareness of him. Third, he's holy. First, he's holy. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he's sovereign. His rule over the universe, over the earth, over you, is absolute, and it will not change. He makes the laws. See, you can go to the cafeteria and pick commandment 2 and commandment 6 and commandment 8, but he makes the laws. So while you're going down the cafeteria, in reality, God is putting the real commandments on your tray. All of them. And you can try to throw them off as he puts them on, you ever been one of those lines where they just keep they put stuff on for you? That's where that's the that's the reality. God sets the laws, and you can pretend you don't have one and three and five and, and, and those on your tray, but they're all on there because He put them on there, and He puts them on with super glue. He just sticks them on. So you know about them, and you've got them, and you're dealing with them, but you don't want to deal with them, so you just suppress the truth. He makes the rules. We're not free in His universe to do what we will. He makes the laws, and we know this. And we're guilty of so much. And that haunts us. Now a higher power doesn't have any law. But God has absolute, uncontested sovereignty. He makes the rules and determines the punishment for breaking the rules. And you can't change that. Number four, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. 
which means he's inescapable. There is no escape, no chance of victory over him. No way around. His rule and his holiness are backed by limitless power. And the fifth thing is the nail in the coffin, if you will. He is immutable. And that big word just means he doesn't change. God does not change. He will not waver or forget or move on to some other world and forget about us and leave us alone. As R.C. Sproul put it, he said, with God's immutability, all hope that God will ever change vanishes. There is no hope that tomorrow God will compromise his holiness. There is no chance that God will ever fall or become tainted with sin as we are. There's not the remotest possibility that God will be afflicted with hardening of the arteries and begin to have lapses of memory. His eyesight will never become dim so he can escape his gaze. His omnipotence will never be diminished by muscle atrophy and feebleness. His sovereignty will, be, will never be overthrown by a coup d'etat. Whatever God is now, he will be forever. Thus, if I'm going to get along with God, it is I who must change and not he. And that's true. So when science even begins to use words like purpose and design, which is really interesting and new. But still deny, they can do this, they can use those words, purpose and design, and still deny God in their own hearts and minds. And part of it is that anthropic principle that I mentioned earlier. God is permitted as sort of a distant designer, the guy that got the thing going, the guy that wrote the information on our genes or whatever, but he's still unknowable. So while some scientists will acknowledge that someone got it all going, they'll still plead ignorance as to his nature. Well, all we know is that man is on top, so man gets the glory. That's why salvation has to be a gift of the grace of God, because we will always twist even what science sticks right in our face. There is a designer. And instead of saying, let's get to know the designer and find out what he says, it's, gosh, we're the pinnacle of creation. We're evolution's highest capstone. We're going somewhere. We're going to be deities ourselves. As soon as we figure out that unifying principle of all knowledge, we'll have it made. There is no evidence that can overcome a rebellious heart that suppresses the truth. That's why salvation is by God's gift and grace. Because only he can awaken the dull heart, the sleeping heart, the alienated heart. It's not about evidence. That's why the last words of Romans 1.20 are without excuse. Because there's all kinds of evidence. There's, there's so much evidence that there's no excuse. Now you know, it's often the case, and you've probably heard this if you've been a Christian for very long, that skeptics and unbelievers will pridefully accuse Christian people of, of needing what they call a crutch. You ever heard anybody say that? You know, religion, you just need a crutch. You need something to get along in life. That's your crutch. You ever heard anybody say that? I plead guilty to that charge. I need help. In fact, I think that's a pretty wimpy way of putting it, a crutch. I need, personally, I'm talking about myself now, way more than a crutch. I have offended repeatedly an infinitely holy, sovereign, omnipotent God, my creator. I've done that. And I deserve to be swept away by his anger. I, I know that. 
So I don't need a crutch. What good does a crutch do when the anger of God is going to sweep you away? You're going to fight with the crutch? The punishment for sin is not a twisted ankle. God does not send Guido after you to break your leg. You haven't been paying your righteousness bill lately. We're going to break your leg. You're going to need a crutch. You know what I need is not a crutch. I need two things. I need two things. And you probably need them too. I need to be rescued from God's holy and perfectly just wrath against me. I need to be rescued from that. And second, I need a new heart. I really need a heart transplant. I need a new insight. I need a, a holy disposition. I need a love for God instead of a hatred for Him. And we will discover in the book of Romans that Jesus provides us with both of those things. So yes, guilty, yes, I need help. I need saving help. What about the guy that says I need a crutch? What about him? What about that unbeliever? He needs a crutch too. His arrogance and his swagger and his disdain, those are all crutches. He's hiding. He's hiding from omniscience. He's stuffing and stifling and suppressing what he knows he has one day face, a holy God. And he's leaning on the crutch of unbelief to crowd out the terror of the justice of God and his sovereignty. And he needs all the help he can get to do that. But that's his crutch. You know, the Beatles are popular again. And one can do quite a case study on suppressing the truth in unrighteousness by examining art as well as science. John Lennon was a suppression artist. He used his skill to suppress the truth. He wrote suppression music. They should give Grammys for that. I want a Grammy in the suppression category. Those of you alive back then will probably remember when John Lennon claimed that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Do you remember that? And the band didn't last very long after that, but John kept writing suppression music. And his song, the song he wrote called Imagine, which you still hear on the radio all the time, is perhaps the suppression song of a whole generation. I know it isn't true, the song says, in, in a sense, I'm just going to, I don't have time to go through all the lyrics, but... But imagine a world with no religion, no countries, no heaven, no hell. Imagine all the people. And every time I hear that song, I can't help but imagine a, a Mad Max movie. Because that, that's what I imagine. If there were no, no religion, no heaven or hell, no countries, everybody would be at each other's throats constantly. I imagine that. That's not what he, he imagined, but that's what I imagine. But his most interesting song, and I can't remember the name of it, but I remember hearing it, was his Declaration of Faith. And if you want to give it a title, just call it The Declaration of Faith. And it's almost not music because it doesn't have any creative content at all, musically or lyric-wise. But it's a litany of things John doesn't believe in. Anybody know this song? I don't believe in countries. I don't believe in Beatles. I don't believe in Krishna. That was a little jab at George. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in this. 
I don't believe in that. I mean, just, it's like a litany of things he doesn't believe in. Everything that people are supposed to believe in, he doesn't believe in. And at the very end, he goes, I just believe in me. <laughs> Heavy, as they used to say. At the end of it all, he found the one object in all the universe that was worthy of his devotion. Himself. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's real nice. But you know, he couldn't, he could not watch his own children grow to adulthood. He could not shape reality or plan even his own destiny. He could defy God, but he could not stop a bullet. Believing in me is not enough. That's cartoon pop psychology. We all grasp for help. We all grasp for something to get us through. Crutches, if you will. Why not choose the one that really solves the problem? The one that takes away guilt. The one that grants new life. The one that changes us forever on the inside. The one that reconciles us to our Creator who has His arms extended and is offering to be reconciled to us. Why not choose that? That's what Jesus accomplished for us. Don't stop till you find him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the word in de describing us, ourselves, our own nature. And looking at our own hearts, we know how true it is. How we run and how we hide and invent and create and pick and choose. and Pretend like you're the one to be judged and not us. Save us from that. By your grace, save us from that. Give us new hearts. And let us see the knowledge for what it is. Let us step out of the darkness into the light. No matter what it shows us about ourselves, let us step into the light and see us for what we really are. Because in that light there is fear, but there is healing. You offer reconciliation. And if we would just be willing to admit the truth, you will change us. What a great promise. Thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.